listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Follow along with me with the scripture reading, Romans 8, verses 18 to 24a. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we were saved. Good morning again, everybody. He is risen. Excellent. That was a bit of a test. Um, and you guys passed. That was great. It's, it's not Easter, um, but this is the last Sunday of the Easter season. Uh, next week is Pentecost Sunday, which celebrates the Holy Spirit coming down on the, the first disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven. Um, so I had to sneak in one more He is Risen before Easter is officially over. <clears throat> With the Easter season wrapping up, that means uh, our sermon series we've been working through over the last month or so is also coming to a close. Next week, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to do a Q&A style sermon based on some of the questions you all have turned in in response to some of these messages the last few weeks. That should be a lot of fun. Um, but today is the last traditional sermon in this series, and it's called Living the Resurrection. <clears throat> now, we've worked through some really big stuff together these last few weeks. We talked about incarnation, how God was fully present in Jesus, and how the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of God renewing all things. We talked about bodies and souls, and how the goal of our faith isn't so much to escape our material bodies, but that the resurrection actually gives us hope for the redemption of our bodies as well. We talked about heaven and earth, and how the story of Scripture isn't so much about people escaping earth to get to heaven, but about God bringing heaven here erasing the divide between the two so that God's will is done and God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And last week we talked about judgment and the need to move from retributive forms of justice to a more restorative, life-giving form of justice. Justice that doesn't just seek to punish but to set things right. That's a fair bit of ground to cover in five weeks, I would say. Um, That's a lot, actually. We've been through a lot. So today, to kind of put a bow on everything, I want to come back down to earth a little bit and ask what might be the most important question of all, the question that we should always be asking when we're wrestling with big uh, spiritual and religious ideas. That question is, so what? So what? Oh, it's on there too. Excellent. We've covered a lot of ground these last few weeks. 
We've worked with a lot of new ideas, a lot of paradigm-shifting stuff, but so what? What difference does any of this actually make on our day-to-day lives? How do things like hope and resurrection and new creation connect with how we live and move in the world today? Because if this is all just about head knowledge, if this is just like correcting and fixing doctrine, like, I used to believe this over here, but now I believe this over here, well, then I don't know if I can think of a bigger waste of time. But if all this talk of hope actually changes something, if these ideas impact the way we practice our faith in the world, well, then I think we might be onto something. Then I think we might be getting a little bit closer to what all this talk of resurrection is actually trying to get us to. And I want to start out today by looking at our passage, Romans 8. Now, if you've read Romans, Romans is itself a very dense book. There's a lot of big theological ideas in the book of Romans. But in chapter 8, Paul gives us an incredibly concrete picture of the hope at the center of our faith. Paul writes that creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. He compares creation to a woman in labor. Creation is groaning in anticipation, waiting to be set free. What is creation waiting for? What is it that has the world on tippy toes waiting to be set free? You might think it's the coming of God to set things right or for Jesus to finally be established as king, and you wouldn't be wrong. Both of those are correct answers. But in this particular passage, in Romans 8, the thing that the world is waiting on, the thing that has creation groaning with anticipation, is the unveiling of the children of God. You guys, that's us. Well, it's not just us. right? That'd be a little crazy. (laughs) But... In this passage, Paul links our salvation, our hope as God's children, to the hope of the entire universe. We are all longing for God to be revealed, for God to be all in all, and creation is longing for God to be revealed in us. For Paul, if you read enough of his letters, you see salvation is not just something God does for us. It's also something God does through us. God is at work in us. We are God's ambassadors, the stewards of a new creation. Christ might not be king of the universe yet, but he is our king. And we are the ones charged with the task of carrying on his mission right here and right now. It's like if you imagine the resurrection of Jesus as like the point on a line, And then the new heavens and new earth, the thing that we've been talking about for the last few weeks is like another point on that line. There's a big gap between those two. And the thing that fills those gap, that gap, is us, the church, and our work. That's our mission. That's our call, to be part of God connecting those two dots. There's a Franciscan friar, uh, which is like a monk, who lives out in New Mexico and writes brilliant books. His name is Richard Rohr. And he has this quote that I absolutely love. It'll be on the screens. We cannot think ourselves into new ways of living 
we have to live ourselves into new ways of thinking. I want to read that again. We cannot think ourselves into new ways of living. We have to live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Which is to say that this call, this mission, all these big ideas we've been talking about these last few weeks about hope and resurrection and new, new creation, it won't do a bit of difference if it doesn't connect to concrete practices. Actual stuff we can do to embody this right here and now. And with the time that we have this morning, I want to highlight three areas where I think all of us can put some of this into practice. Those areas are justice, creativity, and worship. These aren't the only three areas we can put this stuff into practice, but I think it's a start. And my goal is that we can come away with some actual things we can do, or maybe even changes we can make to really start practicing this stuff and living the resurrection. Does that sound like a plan? Excellent. Good, good. The first area is justice. We've talked about justice a lot these last few weeks. There's probably times when I sound like a broken record up here. Justice, justice, justice. But here's the thing. The steps we take to enact justice in the world today actually matter. There's this toxic view in much of the church that justice is just not a priority. The earth is going to burn up someday anyway. The ship is sinking. Might as well get on the lifeboat and escape. Have you heard talk like this before? Yeah, it's not just me. Excellent. Now, this kind of a perspective would have come as a shock to people in Bible times. It would have been a shock to Jesus, to Paul, to the first disciples, the prophets, It would have also come as a shock to Christians throughout history who've worked for justice and the common good. Think about abolitionists. Think about the civil rights movement and the Christian leaders involved in that. Think about, in the dark ages, the Christians who would stay behind in the cities infected by plague to care for the sick, often dying themselves. Was that for nothing? Because the ship's just sinking? Or was that part of something? In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, which is another one of Paul's letters, Paul goes into this long discourse about the resurrection of Jesus, how it gives us hope for the resurrection of our bodies. You should read 1 Corinthians 15. It's a good chapter. But Paul ends that chapter by saying this. After all this talk about resurrection, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your, neighbor, your labor is not in vain. Paul doesn't say, Jesus is raised, we have the hope of resurrection, so let the world burn and escape while you can. Or keep your head down, don't rock the boat, this will all be over soon. Paul's message is, We have this hope of resurrection, so therefore get to work and know that your labor is not in vain. When we work toward justice, we are not just polishing the brass on the Titanic. We're not just um, 
fixing a painting that's about to be thrown in a fire. The steps we take toward justice on this side of, the etern- of eternity, that's the stuff that's going to last into God's new creation. So whether we're talking about the environment, human rights, racial reconciliation, justice reform, that kind of work is essential if we're going to live into God's trajectory for the universe. But that's all really big, right? Like, those are big problems that thousands of people are working toward. And sure, things like advocacy um, are like an obvious way we can do this stuff, but that's not the only way. What about enacting justice in our personal lives, in how we actually live and interact with others? When was the last time you kind of did an inventory of your consumption habits and the impact of things like what you buy, products you use, brands you support, where you invest your money in the world, the impact on your neighbor, on your community, on the folks who... uh, plant your food, make your clothes. We talked about retributive justice and restorative justice last week. The difference between justice that just seeks to punish and justice that seeks to restore and set right. There are some huge implications there for things like criminal justice reform, but what about our own lives? How do we approach conflict? How do we work to resolve conflict? How do we relate to people who've wronged us? People who debate us on Facebook. Neighbors and family members who know just what buttons to push over Thanksgiving dinner. Do we seek revenge and and retribution? Do we fight back and try to one-up and get even? Or do we try to be agents of reconciliation? This is really hard stuff, you guys. It's easy to be nonviolent in theory, to like oppose war and things like that on paper, but actually doing this stuff in your life takes work. But that's where it needs to begin for each one of us if we're going to have any hope on making a difference in the big picture. So that's justice. The next area I want to touch on is creativity. And creativity might not be the best word for this. I'm a musician, so a word like creativity comes very naturally for me. What I really mean by creativity, though, is our drive as human beings to make things, to create, to take the raw materials around us and turn them into something new. There's a new creation theme to that. Whether you're an artist or a carpenter, someone who builds things, fixes things, if you work in the service industry, if you're a teacher or a doctor or a parent or a pet owner, if you know how to work with numbers or with language, your vocation, that drive to create something, to make something new, that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and the garden and our call to be stewards of this earth. I got my very first job at age 11. I was a paper boy. I had to get up every morning at 5 a.m. and deliver newspapers, and I did that job until my freshman year of college. So I was a paper boy for a really long time. And I remember when I first got the job, um, my boss, the guy who supervised all the paper carriers in my area, he actually came out to my house to train me. Um, he was a Christian, and he said something to me that really stuck with me ever since. 
He was like, Dan, I want you to know that delivering papers is really hard work. You don't get a day off. You're out there in the rain and the snow. You're going to have um, customers that hassle you. There will be a lot of mornings that you won't want to get up and deliver the newspaper. But on those times when it gets tough, I want you to remember that this job isn't about you. It's not even about your customers. It's not even really about the newspaper company. The work you're doing is about God. When you do a good job, you're honoring God. When you're out there in the rain and the snow, you're honoring God. You're doing it for God. Now, that guy might have just been trying to trick me into being a good paper boy. I think that's possible. He knew my mom was a pastor, so it's, you know, might as well make this about God. Um, But those words have stuck with me ever since. I've come back to that message time and time again at various points in my life. I don't know if I would be up here this morning as your pastor if it weren't for what that guy said to me when I was 11. There's this pervasive idea in the church, in our culture, that certain vocations are sacred and certain are not. That certain people are called to honor God with their work and certain people aren't. It's this idea that like clergy have this this higher calling, a higher calling than teachers and lawyers and truck drivers, we don't. Every single one of us is called to ministry. Every single one of us has been given gifts, and we're called to use those gifts to build for God's kingdom. Blue collar or white collar, it doesn't matter. When we pursue work that's honorable and good, we are acting as stewards of God's creation. Folks have asked me a few times, what are we actually going to do in the afterlife? Like when we get to eternity, that's a lot of time. How are we going to spend our time? Have you ever wrestled with that kind of a question? It's a cool question. I don't think anyone can really answer that question exactly. But I imagine that whatever we're passionate about in this life, Whatever work we do that draws from the gifts God has given us and makes us feel alive, I imagine that's going to continue in the next life. We're not just going to be sitting around on clouds singing songs, unless that's what you really like to do. Then you can have at it. Doc's nodding his head. I suspect we're going to have work to do. There's another quote that, draws, that drives this home for me. This is from N.T. Wright. He's a retired bishop in the Anglican Church, and he says the following. I'm not sure what musical instruments we'll have available to play Bach in God's new creation, but I'm sure Bach's music will be there. I'm not sure what musical instruments we'll have available to play Bach in God's new creation, but I'm sure Bach's music will be there. Whatever skills God has given you, Whatever you excel at doing, whatever you love to do, substitute that for instruments, music, and Bach, and I think the same holds true. Whenever we do a job with excellence, whenever we make something in a way that honors God, we are building for God's kingdom. So that's creativity. The last area I want to touch on is worship, which is appropriate, I think. I think it's appropriate to talk about worship, given that we are here together in worship. 
what are we doing here? Do you ever, like, wonder that? Why do millions of Christians around the world get up early on Sunday morning, put on their best clothes, or something passable, right, get in a big room like this, sing songs, read the Bible, pray, and listen to a lecture? From the outside, that's kind of a weird thing to do. But worship, when it's done right, that's our weekly touch point with new creation. This is where we gather in an embodied way every single week to practice God's kingdom on earth. If you do it long enough, worship is going to change who you are. We sing songs on Sunday morning to celebrate the new creation God is bringing about. When we pray together, when we share prayer requests and recite the Lord's Prayer, we're facilitating a concrete encounter with God. We're not just talking to ourselves in here. We are connecting all of us together in word and thought with the creator of the universe, which is beautiful and mysterious and a little terrifying if you think about it. One of my favorite things about church is the way it forces me into community with folks I wouldn't have any reason to connect with otherwise. That's another big one. Old and young, rich and poor, across generational, socioeconomical, and when it's done right, across cultural lines, that's practicing for eternity right there. That's modeling the kingdom community, the kingdom of heaven on earth. And there are countless other things we do as a church to embody God's new creation, from evangelism, which is really just inviting people to be part of this mission, inviting people to be part of God's new creation and the hope that we found in Christ. To service, reading scripture together, supporting each other, doing life together, and especially engaging in rituals like communion. I don't know if you know this about Baptists, but we are kind of notorious for hating rituals. We tend to equate ritual with boring. Whenever we talk about rituals, the assumption is that it's just going through the motions, doing the prescribed steps, without any real impact on our lives. But you guys, that's a really narrow understanding of ritual. When rituals are done correctly, they should be concrete expressions of the hope that's within us. It's an outward sign of inward grace. That's what brings us back to this communion table each and every month. We gather here to remind ourselves of Jesus' sacrifice, of the price that was paid to reconcile this world with its creator, and to express our gratitude to God. This bread and this cup, these aren't just lifeless symbols. Communion's not just a ritual we do out of habit. It's a way to transform our imaginations and be reminded of the hope that's within us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the salvation that was made possible through his life, death, and resurrection. A salvation not only for us, but for the whole cosmos. 
Let this bread and this cup nourish us, God. Let it align our hearts to your will. Empower our bodies for the mission you have called us to. And reshape our imaginations in the hope of your kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.